WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Indiana will stay in stage 4.5, a new color-coded map to guide schools on COVID, plus the National Party Convention's wrap-up, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending August 28, 2020. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb is keeping his finger pressed on the pause button for Indiana's reopening plan. The state will stay in its current phase, stage 4.5, for at least another month. That means, for instance, restaurants can only be at 75% capacity, while bars, nightclubs, and tourism sites are at 50%. Holcomb says that extension comes even as some of Indiana's COVID-19 metrics, like the rate at which tests come back positive, are trending down. We don't want that to trend up. Uh, we'd like to see it start to trend down even more so. The governor is also extending his statewide order to wear masks in public for another month. He says he understands people's frustrations, but insists the state must, quote, deal with reality. Is it spreading in fraternity houses? Is it spreading in church services? Is it spreading at work? Is it spreading at home? Is it spreading when we let our guard down? Indiana has been in its current reopening stage since early July. Will Indiana ever be able to drop its coronavirus restrictions before a vaccine is widely available? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, many of Indiana's COVID-19 numbers are starting to look better, but will we ever really get to a point where we can advance to that final reopening stage before we have a vaccine? They may be getting a little bit better, but we're still at way above 8% positivity rating, and, and we're averaging over 850 cases a day. I mean, we now have 91,000 people who have been affected. We're not anywhere near being able to open. And, you know, if the governor had put the mask requirement on earlier and put some teeth behind it, not that it be enforced, but just say <laughs> that there's a penalty for not wearing it, use would have been much, much, much better than it has been. But we're, we're nowhere near. We not only need a vaccine, we need a vaccine that's been proven effective and then widely disseminated before we're going to be able to open or be anywhere close to normal. Michael Bryan, the governor and Dr. Box talked about this this week, which is the idea that, yes, things are looking better, but that doesn't mean it's time to relax. We have to stay vigilant. It's the only way we can keep things better. So with that in mind, is there really a, a scenario in which we can go to that stage five that we've, we've been looking at for a long time? I think it's going to be tough. I think it's, um, I, I don't think we're not going to get back to a 75,000 people in Lucas Oil Stadium kind of world yeah. uh, for a while, right? I mean, um, until there's a vaccine, until um, until we can take that level of risk and make sure that people aren't, aren't going to get sick, or if they do, they can be taken care of unquestionably. Um, but we do have to continue to manage this with, within returning the economy to 
level of high activity, returning to employment, um, returning to full employment. And that's going to require taking some risk. I and mean, we've talked about this for a long time now. It's, it's, it's about taking a measured amount of risk for individuals. It's about personal responsibility and making sure that you're not going to the big frat party, you know, with the, you know, that you're, that you're not hosting a large event, that you are socially distancing, that you are uh, wearing a mask uh, when, when you can or when you're, when you're in public places. So those things need to continue as we, can, as we adopt as a culture and a society these new practices to, to keep each other safe. But, no, I, mean, we're not, I don't think we can get back to huge gatherings of people and, um, for, for a long time. Nikki, I want to ask, and Ann referenced uh, the positivity rate uh, being still uh, high. The state this week made a change to how it's calculating the positivity rate on a rolling seven-day average basis that does look, the, uh, it, it makes it look like the numbers are a lot better than they used to be. Can you explain, like, what went into that? Yeah, basically the way they used to calculate it, they only counted unique individuals who got tested, I mean, the theory being, like, in the beginning, there would be no reason to have multiple tests. But as it's gone on for months and months, I can give a great example. My daughter got tested in April after she had symptoms. She was negative. So if she would ever get tested again, having symptoms, say, four months later, her test wouldn't be allowed in the calculation. So now they're switching to an all-test sort of thing. And to be fair, they are still putting both of those metrics online so that people can see. And either way you want to look at them, I think the key is to look, is it going up? Is it going down? We can still assess a trend with either calculation. Yeah. And, and right now they are going down, which is, which is positive. We hope they keep going that direction. John, though, especially perhaps if these numbers start to uh, or continue to improve, how much longer do you think Holcomb can sort of get away with continuing to, to keep the restrictions in the mask order in place? Uh, I think the bigger risk, in fact, might be doing away prematurely with the order. Uh, I think uh, erring on the side of caution, to use the cliche, is probably a safer bet, certainly in terms of public safety and health, uh, and maybe even in terms of politics, than doing something that seems rash and would come back to bite him. And the way that would come back to bite him, of course, would be, uh, and we've seen this in other states, you know, a governor does away with the order and guess what? Boom, you have a problem again. And in that case, it would be right before the election. So I think uh, I think Mike is right. And he would know better than I. He, he talks to the governor more frequently. Uh, and I'm guessing knows the governor's thinking on this. Uh, I wouldn't guess it will see much difference uh, in the orders and the requirements and safety standards uh, before the election. I think most of the experts are saying 2021 is when we will see some relief uh, or some return to normal, if we can re- even remember what normal is. Uh, because keep in mind, as kids return to college campuses, we're seeing spikes in those areas. And if more and more kids move from remote learning to the classroom across the state at the K-12 through level, I think we'll also see a spike. So I don't see it changing anytime soon. Yeah. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Indiana drop its coronavirus restrictions before a COVID-19 vaccine is widely available? A, yes, or B, no. Last week, we asked you who you think will win the 2020 Indiana governor's race. I think these results are very interesting because I wouldn't put them far outside my maybe prediction at this point for the race. 38% say Democrat Woody Byers will win. 57% say Republican incumbent Eric Holcomb will win. 5% say the libertarian Donald Rainwater. 
If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, the Indiana State Department of Health will launch a map color-coded based on COVID-19 metrics that can help guide decision-making at local schools and governments. State officials have long resisted setting specific parameters for when local schools should open to in-person instruction or shut back down. But State Health Commissioner Dr. Chris Box says the new guidance comes out of repeated pleas for direction. Each county will have a color, blue, yellow, orange, or red, that indicates severity of COVID-19's spread. It's based on a formula of the number of new cases per 100,000 residents, the positivity rate, and recent change in that rate. Box says with each color come suggestions for schools. A county in orange would be experiencing moderate to high community spread. In this case, the recommendations include grade schools continue in person and that a hybrid learning approach be considered for middle and high school students. In red counties, the state suggests middle and high schools move to virtual learning and canceling assemblies and extracurricular activities. Mike O'Brien, local school leaders have been asking for something like this for a long time. Why did it take until... Well, what will end up being the first week of September to come out with it? Yeah, well, like a lot of other places, I think schools are trying to figure this out. I think the reason that the administration originally didn't want to put requirements or parameters on schools is because they, all these school districts are, are different. But this is a really useful and responsive administration being responsive to those requests from school administrators. Um, and it's a useful way the state can guide uh, schools by making sure that they that they have recommendations and parameters and data um, so that they can make, make these decisions and be responsible, be responsive to what's happening in the local school district. It's a catch-22. The administration comes in hard, like with everything else, and, and puts requirements on schools um, that some disagree with and some agree with. Um, you're going to have superintendents that oppose them and superintendents that support them and things that aren't going to work everywhere. And so th- I think this struck a good balance based on what the schools were asking. And Delaney, we've talked about this debate over should we require certain things of schools versus recommending it. These are pretty strong recommendations. Again, still just recommendations, but this gives a lot more clear, like, it seems to be very straightforward. If you're in this color, this is what we think you should do. Is that the right course for Indiana? Right, it is. And it should have been done over a month ago before the schools opened. That's what we were talking about. Instead of giving them that 50-page ridiculous dictionary and asking them to write a sentence, they should have said, if you're in this category, this is what you need to do. The problem is that Eric Holcomb is too busy trying not to offend Mike Pence and Donald Trump. He wants the schools open, okay? And he doesn't want to come down too hard or be seen as coming down too hard for fear of offending them. But these guidelines would have been much more useful before the schools opened, so they had time to prepare and to didn't determine what they needed to do to do remote learning and all of those other things that come along. And they need to they need to work on them. I mean, some of these school districts are ridiculous in that they have teachers coming in in the morning to prepare a lecture for remote learners, then teach a full day, and then the remote learners can, can email them questions until 9 o'clock at night. I mean, we're, we're, we are certainly not paying teachers enough to be on duty 12 or 15 hours a day And we need to have the kind of guidance. It doesn't have to be a mandate. It just has to tell them what they need to be thinking about if they're in these categories. That's Uh, all. uh, It should have been done in July. I think that's what this is doing. John, how valuable valuable will this be for local schools as they are 
confronting angry parents over their reopening plans and whether it's hybrid, virtual, or in-person, to be able to say, look, we are in blue, so we're okay, or we are in orange, so we're not okay. How valuable will that be for the local schools? I think it will be valuable. Uh, I think as society, we have realized that color coding works in a lot of different arenas, from financial advising and economic conditions to uh, certainly public health issues to uh, determining political districts, we use color codes. <laughs> uh, it's an easy shortcut, uh, shorthand to determine, uh, to digest information quickly. And whereas the school districts themselves, of course, would have poured over the, the raw data and, and tried to make an argument, well, you see, we're only at this, uh, you know, this stage in our recovery process, so you need to listen to us parents. This, as you say, Brandon, they can point to the, the colors and uh, makes it a lot easier for them. I think the only confusion we have is all of the red counties in Indiana that are going to be uh, opposed to being seen as blue, but uh, uh, getting used <laughs> to transferring politics into public health. But uh, it, may be, oh, it may be the only God. time that those red counties are ever blue to begin with. So that'll be... <laughs> that'll be all right. Nick, Nikki, I did want to ask you sort of on that same idea which was, as we looked at this, this map that they showed on Wednesday, um, just on the slide, we'll get the, the actual map on the website next Wednesday, uh, and it'll be updated every Wednesday after that. But as we looked at this map, we could, and they even talked about it, we can start to see that a lot of the counties that are not in blue, that are in yellow or orange or even red, are some of our more rural counties where uh, we even had a question, or we even had Dr. Box talked about, you know, talking to local health officials in those places, and those officials saying we're having trouble people you know, getting people to wear the masks. Will something like this help in that effort? Well, I think it definitely can't hurt guardrails of some kind, and being able to see where your county sits is very helpful. I do think it's a little interesting that the rural counties are coming out looking worse than the urban counties, but part of that is because. When you're looking at positive cases, all it takes is one kind of small outbreak in a yeah. rural county to, re you know, skew your your results. So that's the only concern I've heard so far. Everyone else seems to be pretty accepting and appreciative of it. Well, the two National Party conventions are over as the Republican National Convention wrapped up this week after the Democrats completed theirs a week ago. At their hearts, the conventions were about competing visions for America's future. For the Democrats, that meant, in part, frequent excoriations of the current occupant of the White House, Donald Trump. But it also included touting their presidential nominee, Joe Biden, like in the speech from former South Bend mayor and erstwhile presidential contender, Pete Buttigieg. He talked about the potential for change, evidenced, he said, by the wedding ring he wears. Love makes my marriage real. But political courage made it possible including that of Joe Biden, who stepped out ahead even of this party when he said that marriage equality ought to be the law of the land. The Republican convention featured the flip side of that record, castigating Democratic leadership while exalting the work of President Trump. That included Vice President Mike Pence's commentary on the unrest, protests, and violence over racial inequality that has captured much of the last few months. The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. And under President Trump, we will always stand with those who stand on the thin blue line, and we're not going to defund the police, not now, not ever. Biden has already said he does not support defunding the police. Nikki Kelly, do you think these conventions changed many minds? 
Oh, absolutely not. And frankly, that's not. I mean, they're made to sort of enthuse your base. That's who they're aimed at, and that's what they did. I also don't think we really learned anything new or surprising from either side. They stuck to the same themes, and that's definitely what we're going to be, you know, hearing for the next couple months. John Schwannis, do you think the obviously these conventions were very different? They're not in person, um, so the virtual nature of them, uh, most of the speeches or a lot of the speeches were pre-taped and pre-recorded. Um, do you think that that made them more or less effective? There were attempts, certainly, uh, through the smart use of media to make them more effective, but I would, I would, my gut would tell me. Uh, no, they weren't as effective. I, I just think other things are on people's minds. Uh, of course, uh, there was nothing to, you couldn't watch. Uh, I guess you could if you really wanted to watch the, the virtual uh, gatherings. But it just I don't think it was the same. And I don't think the message uh, came through quite as loudly or clearly, which is why we're not seeing the bumps uh, in terms of polling that we might normally see. You know, I think Nikki's exactly right. The electorate, based on, again, on the surveys I've seen, it overwhelmingly, uh, an overwhelming number have already said, I know exactly who I'm going to vote for, uh, and nothing will change my mind. A higher percentage, actually, than we've seen in, in recent presidential cycles. So all this did, I think all it was intended to do, is, as Nikki said, is get people off their couches and uh, either down to the mailbox, where that's allowed, or down to the polls. Uh, and this is a turnout election. Yeah. Mike, to that end, in terms of if, if the goal of the conventions is in, in large part, particularly maybe this year, to, to rev up your base, what do you make of, of the Democrats' strategy a week ago of loading up their convention with more than a few Republican officials, including former governors and, and, and ambassadors and, and things like that? Is that really speaking to the Democratic base? No, it's speaking to the middle. Um, and that's where you're going to win an election. So, I mean, you're not changing people's minds who are Republicans tuning into the Republican convention or, or Democrats tuning into the Republican convention. But it does set the stage for where the policy and political fights are going to be waged over the next 68 days. Um, and those and you're trying to convince those those undecided voters, those 10 or 15 percent in the middle. So Democrats highlighted um, Republican officials. Mike Pence, in the comments that he made um, uh, in, the, in the clip there, uh, just set out a very clear message that that Trump is going to choose, is going to be against the social unrest and the things that are in the protests and the things that are happening, and that's going to be attractive to certain people in the middle. It's going to put some people in the middle off. That's uh, set the stage for where this election I and mean, how this election is going to be talked about and where the fight's going to be. Annalyn, do you think one or other, I mean, I'm sure you enjoyed the Democratic convention a little more than the Republican one, um, but do you think either were particularly effective in what they needed to do this year? I, I thought the use of uh, individuals from around the country, particularly for the announcing the vote for the Democrats, was very effective. I think, I, I think frankly, on that speech that Mike Pence gave, he ought to be ashamed of himself. I mean, he said when he lost to Phil Sharp in his first congressional election, that he was never going to resort to negative campaigning again. He knows what he said is a lie. He knows that they're not going to have chaos if, if Joe Biden is elected. He knows Joe Biden isn't talking about defunding the police. And by the way, the federal government doesn't even fund the police. So Mike Pence lost whatever claim to moral integrity he had when he hitched his wagon to a star who was a liar and incompetent and corrupt 
and a narcissist and a bully. He's tried to stand alone to be the beacon of, of basically of sanity in that in that duo. And I think I think he has now gone over to the dark side completely. Mike, I want to ask you something about Mike Pence's speech. A lot of the discussion this week seemed to be about, not even for 2020, but what various speeches at the Republican convention indicated about 2024, whether it was Donald Trump Jr. or Nikki Haley or Vice President Pence. So if you're Mike Pence, do you think if you're looking ahead to 2024, that speech did what you needed it to do? Uh, I don't. I don't know because I don't know what the context is going to be in 2024. I mean, in 26, we couldn't have predicted 2016. We couldn't. Have, we couldn't predict what what we're doing right now, where we have a global pandemic and and social unrest on on systemic racism. I didn't. I didn't predict that. Yeah. Uh, so I think what is helpful for Mike Pence is to is to be a great vice president to President Trump, which is what he's done, and be a great defender of him and promoter of, of, of what that administration has done for the last yeah, four years. Yeah, that's unquestionable. All right, well, the Political Action Committee, tied to the largest teachers union in Indiana, is not endorsing a candidate in the race for governor. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jenny Lindsay explains the group instead plans to focus on helping candidates in state legislative races. The Indiana Political Action Committee for Education, or IPACE, is the political arm of the Indiana State Teachers Association. In a statement last week, IPACE says it won't endorse any candidate running for governor like it usually does. Instead, ISTA President Keith Gamble says IPACE will support teachers running for seats in the General Assembly. He says lawmakers have acted as a, quote, roadblock for positive change in public schools. So we've, we've decided to, to focus our limited uh, financial resources in this election to those races. But the outcome of the governor's race will play a key role in the future of education in Indiana. The winner will appoint Indiana's top education official for the first time after current superintendent Jennifer McCormick leaves office. John Schwannis, just how devastating is this for Woody Myers? It's, it's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, for a number of reasons, you know, Woody Myers is not flush with cash, as we saw at the most uh, recent financial reporting period. Uh, he, his his war chest was dwarfed, uh, and that's not even strong enough a word by the incumbent Eric Holcomb's um, cash on hand. So, uh, from a financial standpoint, it hurts. From an organizational standpoint, it hurts. Because teachers, as we've seen uh, time and time again in Indiana political history, are a potent force. And uh, they can organize, uh, they are organized, and they can deliver um, a victory. Yeah. We've seen it before. And uh, the fact that they're going to sit on the sidelines uh, at a time when I think Woody Myers would have dearly loved to have them on his side in an active manner is a tough one. Nikki Kelly, do you think this makes a lot of sense from IPACE's point of view? I'm frankly shocked by it. I, I mean, this is the first election where a governor is going to appoint the secretary of education and they're sitting it out, which is shocking to me. But I think it does show that they think they're going to have to work with Governor Holcomb in the future, that they're taking a hands off approach. Yeah. Do you think, Anne Delaney, do you think this was um, the politically, ca the, the political calculation here was, was at the top of the list for IPACE? It's now controlled, IPACE, or I, uh, ISDA is now controlled by a Republican, okay? And, and we were told, I don't know how many months ago during the session, that we weren't going to do teacher increases in pay because the governor was going to study this and he was going to appoint this commission. They were going to figure out how to fund it. 
heard a lot from that group lately, haven't we? We have all kinds of ideas about teacher increases in pay. So I, I think the more surprising thing, frankly, given the fact that at the moment at least uh, the incumbent is ahead in the polls, I, I think it's more surprising that they didn't endorse Governor Holcomb. Where, would you have, how, how surprised, Mike O'Brien, would you have been if they had endorsed Eric Holcomb? Um, it would have been unprecedented. <laughs> Them sitting out is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, external things have influenced what we're talking about in the, in the, in the, down the stretch in this election. Um, but this election was originally supposed to be about grassroots, the teacher activity at the grassroots level, yeah. focused on the governor's race and winning it back for Democrats on those, on those issues. Um, I mean, they talked about dedicating financial resources to other places, and that all, every PAC has to do that, uh, regardless of, um, of, of whether or not. But, but all they had to do was send out a press release saying, we're for Woody Myers. We endorse Woody Myers. They didn't have to give him a million dollars. They, yeah. they just said, we're for him. And what he's saying. I'm not sure they have a million dollars to give. Well, that's probably true, too. All right. Well, finally, we talked about the political conventions today, and obviously they look very different this year amid COVID-19. For instance, as Ann referenced, at the DNC, the roll call of states was done via recorded video message from each state, with many delegations choosing significant locations to announce their votes from. Indiana's, led by Pete Buttigieg, showed the old Studebaker plant in South Bend, a symbol of that city's revitalization. And Delaney, what Indiana location would you have chosen for that roll call? I think given what's going on in the country, I would have chosen the Kennedy, uh, the Kennedy King Memorial in Indianapolis, which was made out of melted guns. I think I would have chosen that one. Yeah, I like that one. Mike, real quick. Uh, it's worth remembering the Studebaker plant in South Bend was revitalized by Mike Pence. I would have picked Benjamin Harris. Oh. <laughs> All right. All right. That is, that, that is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash IWIR, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, and join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.